Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Delivered Lumens podcast. My name is JP Bedell, and if you don't know me, I've been a lighting designer in the theater and for buildings all around the world. And I'm an advocate for the power of light to improve our spaces and lives. This episode tackles that theme directly. Leela Shanker is a lighting designer first and foremost, but she's also a vocal champion and leader in the world of sustainability. Leela is part of the Greenlight Alliance. In this episode of the podcast, we talk about sustainability on the material side. I know the word sustainability has become loaded with baggage, so let's reframe it a little bit because what Leela and I really talked about was the future of the lighting industry and the light in people's lives. The future we want, one with much less waste, less carbon, and mitigated climate change, will only come if all the stakeholders in the design and building industry are working toward it. Leela and I start with the nuts and bolts of the GLA Incubator Project, which is gathering baseline carbon data for the lighting industry. But then the conversation really shifts outward into best practices of design, maintenance, the life cycle of products, end of life, and how we need to think differently about the built environment. As always, thank you for listening to the podcast. As of this recording, the, the Delivered Lumens podcast has 800 subscribers. So thank you. If we're going to grow the show and make lighting a bigger conversation, then we need to share it. This episode in particular is one that can be shared outside of the lighting industry. So if you enjoy this one, leave a comment. It really helps the show get noticed in the podcast apps and share it with your friends and colleagues. It's how the show will grow, and I really appreciate it. Now, without further ado, here's Leela Shanker. Hello, Leela. Hey, JP. Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Oh, thank you for, for joining. If this particular recording has more of a, like jovial hangout tone it's because Leela and I have known each other for a while and we're okay being a little silly with one another so uh, but it does not belie the seriousness of the topic we're talking about sustainability today folks that are not lighting people listening to this you think about lighting and sustainability or lighting and green lighting you might think about LED 10 15 years ago the industry went through this whole revolution where LEDs became the default light source in the industry to the good, for the most part, vastly reduce, reducing our energy uh, to produce the same amount of lumens, same amount of light. But that's not exactly what we're talking about now. Um, and so the GLA has launched a program called its uh, Incubator Project, which is what Leela is going to talk with us about today. And this is all about material sustainability. So Leela, let's start at the, the top, the high level here. When we talk about material sustainability, what are we conceptually talking about? And then we can kind of dive into what we're doing on the lighting level. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great place to start because this term sustainability has so many different dimensions and they seem to be growing. Um, it seems that everything apart from performance criteria is sort of being thrown into this ever-expanding bucket. We are looking at specific aspects of sustainability under the life cycle assessment incubator we are really focused on decarbonization primarily because we are looking at life cycle assessment in terms of the impact on the environment largely and on human health vicariously um, because of the different production processes involved in creating luminaires as well as getting materials from one place on the globe to another, um, processing those raw materials, creating a finished product, getting them to site, maintaining them on site, and then getting them off to their end of life or reincarnation, uh, whether that be recycling certain components or remanufacturing elements of the original luminaire or actually taking it to landfill. So, uh, we do talk about materials to the extent that we are thinking about raw materials becoming a product, returning to material form or um, you know reclaimed in some way. Uh, we do actually look at some degree of energy use in use phase as well. That's not excluded from this. Um, the work is definitely not just about the product. Hmm. So that's why the incubator has both designers and manufacturers involved in this conversation. But uh, yeah, that is the tricky part about understanding the relative impacts of embodied carbon, as we call it, which is really the emissions associated with using energy to produce products and move them around and then use them on site and move them around again, mm -hmm. or uh, operational carbon, which is really associated with 
the efficiency of the fixture and using the fixture on site. And, and of course, operational carbon has been the focus of sustainable initiatives when we think about lighting in the past, but now this conversation has broadened. So when the Green Light Alliance actually started, it was really focused on circular economy and circular design principles uh, primarily, and that is still very much part of the conversation. And you generally can't really have one conversation without the other. So I think this this conversation about material sustainability and operational sustainability is interesting. Um, the example of this that always comes to my mind is from just before the pandemic, I saw an article um, comparing the Bank of America tower there, the, the new con- newly constructed skyscraper, to the Empire State Building. And one of the things they found was for all of the sort of green lead qualified design aspects of the new tower, it was using more energy per square foot than the Empire State Building was. And the reason was um, so many of the Bank of America Merrill Lynch traders were using that building as a trading floor. And those computers are running 24 hours a day and they're very high power, you know, uh, these huge trading desks with four screens per running all these complex calculations. And so in operation, while the building itself was designed to be much more sustainable, what was going on within the building was obviously not. And so it is a marriage. It's a marriage of the design principles that go into the product or the space and what's actually being done in the space or, or with those products. Um, for folks that are not lighting people, and you let's say you work in an office, you may be used to seeing a strip of light through the ceiling you know, that's three, four, five inches wide and think that it's a fairly simple device. Um, but the reality is that as we've shifted to LED, that device is closer to a computer than it is to an old-fashioned light fixture. There's more moving components. There's more circuitry. There's more, um, more of everything, really. Um, and so when we talk about material sustainability, we're talking about a device that has many complex components that um, is not something that is easily just taken out of the ceiling and just recycled wholesale. It has to, there are complexities involved with that and sourcing complexities, as we found out during the pandemic. Um, so let's talk a little bit then, Leela, about this concept of circularity within the complexity of even one lighting fixture. And then I think once we talk about one, one fixture, we can, that will sort of, we can extrapolate out how complicated this can be across a design or across multiple fixture types. Yeah, when we think about circular design, we're really thinking about moving away from the old one-way uh, you know, single line to, from materials to product to landfill, as we had previously had, and moving to try and recapture materials along the way rather than having so much end up in waste. Um, and that means trying to think about the end of life of a product from the very beginning and allow for design of that product so that it's easier to disassemble it at the end of its life, whether that's because of technology advancing and, and so now you've got technical obsolescence or because some because of failure, so some component isn't working anymore, or just the nature of our design cycles and real estate cycles where tenants come in and out and, you know, we're after a new look and, and new function. Um, yeah. Every aspect of the space can change over time and we need to be able to be flexible in some way, but also have the foresight to think about how we can make the opportunity grow for us to actually not just spin products off into landfill and and go for a completely new product each year. Yeah, I think um, I'm based in New York and... um, there's a lot of conversation right now about what happens to the city post pandemic, right? Um, there's a lot of hand wringing about returning to the office, not returning to the office. What are we going to do with all this empty real estate? Um, there's a lot less conversation. I think about whatever happens to this real estate and something will happen. Um, whatever happens, what happens to the materials within it? And is all of this stuff just going to get ripped out and thrown, you know, in some major landfill? 
or are we going to think through this in a more intelligent way? And I think right now, I don't know that we have the means to think about it in a more intelligent way. And that's, I think, what, what you're doing with the GLA incubator project. So let's talk a little bit about what the incubator is and what we're trying to study. And then we can kind of double back into how that relates back to that circular economy. Yeah. Well, as you are familiar with, but maybe others are, are not as familiar with, uh, the Greenlight Alliance is a, a very um, open community of manufacturers, lighting designers, industry body representatives, press, uh, lighting professionals from every corner of the different sectors of our um, field of practice interested in progressing the conversation and taking action with respect to circular design and decarbonisation. And it really did start as a vehicle for transparency to just allow people from different territories around the world to see what work was being done, share case studies, share knowledge, um, start to get the conversation moving around what we can do better as an industry and, and how we can avoid duplication of efforts if there are systems and uh, best practice approaches developing in different parts of the world. Let's actually share the best ideas from wherever they come mm -hmm. and, and you know, make sure that they're propelled as fast as possible. Right. So that was kind of the premise for the network, if you like, in the community. It was um, very much about collaboration. And there were regular meetings where different case studies, single case studies were being shared across the network, which was great. And then the thinking started to grow that it would be great to do a collective case study. And there was a lot of interest from some corners and trepidation from other corners uh, about how to approach this complex product that is a lighting <laughs> picture. Uh, you know, it's not concrete where we've got five simple ingredients. It's not a commodity product that we're talking about. Uh, as JP mentioned before, it's a computer brain. Right. And so, you know, pulling that apart and trying to apply life cycle assessment analysis, which is this internationally understood framework for looking at the full life cycle impact of a product and a design, how we would do that in a consistent way. So, Thus, the incubator became uh, an initiative that we felt would be a very finite project where we could actually dive in and test as a pilot what areas might require uh, further consensus and dialogue amongst the industry to understand how we could get a more consistent approach to measuring, reporting, and improving the impact we're having in lighting. Um, and in so doing, we were trying to decide on which framework would be good to just dip our toe in the water and start to have these mm. conversations. And, and, and actually looking at an industry average environmental product declaration for a few workhorse fixtures mm. uh, seem to be a very sensible way to go because this framework is understood by other sectors of the construction industry and other partners that we have and therefore clients that we have not to push one particular framework for life cycle assessment but just to use an existing framework that people had understood and it would then provide more grounds for visibility and discussion. So just as a, a piece of context for folks that um, if you're a decision maker within an organization and you're thinking about, you know, renovating or designing a new space or whatever, almost every aspect of the built environment has some level of sustainability transparency. Am I fair? Is that fair to say, Lilo? Right? Like simpler devices. I'm thinking things like ceiling tiles or wall coverings or chipboard in general, right? Well, yeah. I think interior items are just getting there. So a lot of the sure. focus for life cycle assessment has been on the envelope of a building to date. So it's been steel and wood and windows and, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot more development um, with concrete who have, you know, hundreds of existing environmental product declarations. 
by many different suppliers, whereas the interior items are just starting to come into this area now. So yes, absolutely, JP, there are existing uh, reports available for certain textiles sure. and uh, products, and lighting is you know, starting to become part of this conversation as well. Right. Now, the challenge here, just so everyone sort of, and, and Lila, you tell me if I'm wrong about describing this, but my, my understanding of the challenge here is that if you're doing a declaration or an environmental declaration on something like a pane of glass or a piece of sheetrock or an acoustical ceiling tile or a piece of carpet, it's, I don't want to say straightforward, but it's a relatively simple thing to start to study because there's relatively few components coming from relatively few places to get it from the factory to the final location. When it comes to a lighting fixture, um, we could be talking about literally dozens, if not a hundred more or more components that go into a given lighting fixture. So there's the aluminum chassis that holds the fixture together. There's the mounting hardware that holds all these pieces together. There's the electronics for the LED board itself. There's the electronics that go within the driver, which is, for those, again, who are not in the lighting industry, that, that power pack that you plug into your wall before you connect it to your laptop, that is the equivalent of an LED driver. It's got a thing in there, and there's usually intelligence built into it. Um, there's all the wiring that runs back and forth. There's the mounting that gets it up in the ceiling. So each one of these little parts and pieces that make the whole system work have their own sets of where did it come from? How did it get there? Is it recyclable? Is it disassemblable? Is there glue involved? You know, there's, it's a lot more, it, there's a lot of complication in terms of actually analyzing even what looks like a very basic fixture in an office space or a school or something. Yeah, absolutely right. And there can be different supply chains to make the same product. So mm. you could have certain components coming through from parts of Asia or across Europe and assembled in one particular facility for certain markets or the same product could actually have a, a different supply chain to service other markets. So it's not as straightforward um, to necessarily create one report that fits all. Right, right. So that's where this idea of industry averages comes together, right? So the reality is that you know, across even two different manufacturers, you could get wildly different embodied carbon statistics because, again, they could be coming from different places, their supply chains are different. So the thought process with the incubator, as I understand it, is take a very common light fixture and then get a representative sample or at least a small representative sample of different manufacturers going about making that product and then average that together to come up with the basic idea of what the embodied carbon for that fixture type is. Is that, that a good summary of what we're doing here? Yes, so an industry average environmental product declaration, whether it's for concrete or a lighting product, is always taken to be the average of a number of different branded products mm. with unique sets of data associated with them. And then you get a generic unbranded product with data for which greenhouse gases are emitted and associated with the production and use of that product. And so in the case of this lighting industry life cycle assessment incubator, we are creating five industry average environmental product declarations, which will give us an initial insight into what the uh, impact is, particularly a metric called global warming potential for um, the five products being a downlight, a linear, a cylinder pendant, and two by two troffer as we call them sure. here in the States, and a pedestrian light pole. Yeah, so these are, these are the fixtures that you as a layperson, will have seen in the, the doctor's offices you go to, they're in your kids' schools, they're in the office you go to, they're in the supermarket you visit, they're in pretty much every built environment that you go into. We've, uh, the GLA has tried to find these common fixture types, and this is the start of the, of the process, right, to understanding what goes into building these and what the potential carbon footprint is of those, uh, those devices. We talked a little bit about the primary goal here, which is this industry average environmental uh, impact study. Um, can we talk a little bit about what we, we gather this data, what happens then? Now we know something about this. Now, what do we do with this as far as the designer level, as far as what, what's the go forward once we understand some of this? 
Yeah, this is very much, as you say, JP, a, a preliminary piece of research in some ways. Hmm. Uh, whilst it may sound as though we're getting this average which could be taken as a benchmark, we have very much understood that it's more about starting the community and the conversation and the process of measurement. So when we kicked off in March last year, we were very much about three primary goals. And this speaks to where this is going as well after this initial pilot. One was collaboration between designers and manufacturers so that it wasn't seen to be, um, you know, this solo endeavor or responsibility of, for example, just the manufacturing community to make a really efficient product, which seems to be the focus of a lot of government regulation and code just because it's easier. You know, you can actually define the, the target of the code sure. as a manufacturer. Um, but we're very aware that it, the conversation should be just as much about how we use light, where we use light and light culture, meaning what we as consumers out in the world, in our homes, in our offices, in our hospitals, in our schools, are used to and expect from how, you know, how bright is the light, how widely distributed mm -hmm. is it, you know, do we expect it to be on everywhere all the time or mm -hmm. is it just mm -hmm. when we need it? So, you know, that, that collaborative effort, both between manufacturers and designers and also between people in different parts of the world was really key. The second thing was obviously trying to start to measure where we're at right now. And we really can't start to consider where we should be to, to try and contribute to all of these net zero goals, which everyone is familiar with out in the world, whether that's at a national level or, you know, contributing to international treaties for decarbonisation. We cannot say how we're going to achieve those goals without understanding what our current impact is. And without having a system for measurement, we really can't <laughs> get into the more important question of improvement or optimization, as it's called. So measurement is really where we're still sitting right now, just trying to figure out how to define the product we're measuring and how to apply the same assumptions and interpretation when we're trying to an analyze mm. what the impact is. And then the third goal we really had was ultimately global harmonization as far as possible. And when I say that, it's really about recognizing that we're all addressing what is a global problem of climate change and you know, doing the best we can to reduce decarbonization. Um, and that cannot be done in isolation. So if we are participating in a global market and we're developing systems that are very um, much at their infancy, then we will save a lot of people a lot of time and a lot of money if we can develop a system that's understood, if not in the same way across territories, then at least we understand how to translate them between territories and as much as possible move towards the same interpretation so that you don't have designers needing to know about a different system for every different location where their right. designs are being applied and you don't have manufacturers paying for regulation and paying for compliance measures in all of these different territories as well. So I think where we'll be at at the end of this initial pilot year is having identified a number of the areas that deserve a little bit more discussion from the industry about how to interpret the analysis in the same way. Mm -hmm. um, we will have and we do have a really vibrant community of pioneering thinkers who are really engaged and you know I can't speak more highly of everyone involved including yourself JP you know people who are really putting their money where their mouth is <laughs> to um, you know put time and effort into figuring these questions out but ultimately we want to have more involvement from industry bodies for lighting participating as a, as a collaborative effort across territories to start to come closer towards benchmarking and optimization. So there's so much in there, right? Um, and what we're talking about here, and I think the reason this, this conversation has brought so much excitement before we started recording about, so for those listening, we're recording this about 
two weeks after Education, which is a big New York City-based um, lighting showcase where there's an educational component and then there's a trade show. And we were talking just now about how many speakers, how many different participants were there talking about the broad topic of sustainability. Because I think everyone recognizes that the, not just the lighting industry, the construction industry, the design and build industry needs to improve. And we need to improve rapidly if we're going to uh, decarbonize. Um, and that's only happens with the kinds of efforts that the GLA and the incubator project are, are putting forth. Um, it will be interesting to see where that conversation evolves. Um, but I think one thing to, to start to think about is we are used to, and urban environments are classic for this, but I think I think it's true everywhere, nearly disposable buildings, right? We are used to this concept of being able to take clear a piece of land and raise a building within, you know, six to eight months, soup to nuts. And then when that venture is over, leveling that building and starting over again. And I wonder if part of this conversation, because this is a use case that Lila, you and I have talked about before, Evaluating a fixture that's going in a hospitality environment with a very with a much shorter window of service potentially than a fixture that's going into a hospital or a school where that building is likely to be in service for you know decades. Is it fair to say that part of this data collection gives us a sense for the embodied carbon over the time of service of a building? Or I mean, once we know this these numbers, then we can kind of apply it to the 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 embodied carbon in the building. Is that is there thought to that or, or that aspect of sustainability? Yeah, the application of the same product to different use case scenarios is really critical. Mm -hmm. And the analytical framework that tries to grapple with that complexity is somewhat limited right now for lighting. So there are assumptions being made about the annual operating hours for these different kinds of spaces. And as with everything, you know, with any economic model, similarly, assumptions start to break down when you get into the reality of all of our different projects, because there, there really isn't one size fits all right. um, for, for any design. So we are in the, in the middle of trying to unpick what makes sense for this reporting, because um, it is important that we actually do look at everything on a case-by-case -case basis for us to understand our um, individual designs. But then at the same time, we want to be able to understand some degree of a level playing field to be able to compare and choose particular luminaires or particular layouts and and strategies at, at, at the start as well. So, sure. um, you know, where we will end up at the end of this initial year is some sense of what's called cradle to gate impact, which is really more focused on production of the fixture with some assumptions about chosen locations for where the fixture will be used. So for example, a, a, um, using the energy grid from London, New York, LA, you know, okay. choose a number of project sites based on the designers who are involved in the incubator as well. Uh, but then as you say, there's use case scenario modeling where we're going to be choosing a certain number of annual operating hours for hospitality, education, institutional, residential, urban. Sure. And work backwards from there. Sure, sure. So this is like, I, this is the part of the conversation that's, that's pretty fascinating to me because what we start to think about here is, um, could you rethink how a restaurant worked? Could you rethink a restaurant, like conceptually, I don't know the the average, um, not uh, what, I'll, what I'll call like a independent restaurant, right? Something that's not part of a big chain. I don't know what the average life of one of those is. Um, but let's say it was four years. Is the embodied carbon going into the, the on a square footage basis of that restaurant astronomically higher than that of a hospital, right? Where we're talking about 
the same material going to be used in that space on a square footage basis for the next 30 to 40 years. Um, if those troughers or linears or whatever's going in the hospital are serviceable in the field and not needing to be, you know, replaced, we could be looking at a very, a much lower embodied carbon number on a square footage basis for something like a hospital or a school, um, or not. Maybe, maybe I'm totally wrong about that. You know, who knows, right? Like, I don't know the answer to that, but, um, this also starts to get into best practices, right? Like I think right now, if a troffer dies in a hospital, they just pull it out and they toss it. Um, you know, we don't have good models for how to em employ that kind of circularity over time, at least not that I'm aware of at this point. It's very true. We, you know, the, uh, the questions you're asking, JP, are exactly what we would like the answers to as well sure. and that kicked off the incubator really because without measuring we really can't say. There's sort of intuitive responses that we might have that you assume there's sort of a linear multi multiplier by number of years that something's in operation, but we don't know until we actually have these generic buckets of data with sensible, comparable frameworks for analysis right. to actually plop these into, you know, particular scenarios and, and see what the numbers actually say. But there's a couple of things I wanted to respond to as well, that different stakeholders who are making the decisions about which fixtures to use and how often to replace them are really critical here. So lighting designers are ready to be part of the conversation to choose more um, thoughtfully right. in terms of there are existing luminaires out there that are more sustainably designed than others and we want to support manufacturers who are investing in this space. We need a little support from clients, whether that's, you know, our architecture um, friends who we consult to or the developers who actually pay for the project itself to recognise this is a priority. And yes, we have some leverage now under existing green building frameworks like LEED, which actually do give credits for, have, for using products that have disclosed material transparency reporting. But the, the targets are pretty low. So mm -hmm. where the lighting really contributes in a very meaningful way to account of products that's not really that ambitious right. is a question, right? And and whether we want to do the right thing because it's best practice as opposed to just seeing this as a compliance box ticking exercise is a question for each individual designer and individual brand uh, to answer. But similarly, in the idea of racing towards decarbonisation goals, even retrofits can be a bit of a paradoxical question because in the idea of, of uh, you know, there's the Empire State Challenge at the moment, which is a New York-based, New York State-based challenge to actually reduce carbon emissions with a handful of the, the, uh, the state's largest developers by square footage. The idea of making sure that they're using LED fixtures, for example, to reduce the operational carbon could mean okay, ripping out a whole bunch of old right. school technologies, but then you've got this um, embodied carbon question of what happens to those old fixtures and, you know, do we put in a new LED fixture that is still a very high embodied carbon cost, right. which is a fixed cost, really. It's, you know, that if we're talking about cradle to gate, um, you can't improve that over time. Right. So there are lots of, I mean... Uh, because I'm based in New York, there's the New York City Challenge. There's also the state level. Um, we know that California likes to lead the way on these things. Here on the state, in the states, Europe is aggressively um, going after different carbon goals, and um, and so I think we have leaders in this. The question is, and I think this is what's really exciting for me is I've seen over the course of um, my professional career. The, the I'll say the kids, but like when I was in college and, uh, you know, when we were sort of coming up, this idea of sustainability and the climate crisis and all of this were front of mind for us as we were emerging into the market. Um, what's interesting to see now is for most of us, that value, that concern 
has stayed with us as we've entered periods of now being the decision makers. Um, I used to do some work with the uh, Broadway Green Alliance, and they would tell the, uh, one of the one of the guys that, that run that ran that organization would tell a story about how he would go to an actor at a Broadway show and say, you know, we're trying to do more with sustainability. And the actor would say, I'll do whatever you want, but I'm just an actor. I don't know. I'm not sure what I could do. And then they would go to the director and the director would say, well, I'll do whatever you want, but I'm just a director. I'm not sure what I can do. And then the director would go to the producer and the producer would say, well, I would do what you want, but I'm just a producer. I don't know what to do. And so you get this circular conversation of people that all want to do something, but don't have an actionable thing. What is the thing that I can do? Um, And I think, you can't act until you know what, 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 what there is to know. And that, that's why I think this work is so important because it gives us a baseline to understand what the decisions are we're currently making and how to replicate those um, or how to improve on those, I should say. I have a, a, a thought and a question for you that I, I, I wonder what your reaction might be to. It seems to me there's an enormous business opportunity here to close the circularity gap right? Like people throw away light fixtures because they don't know what else to do with them. And I wonder if there was some service out there that could develop proper electronics recycling. Um, that seems like an enormous opportunity if you, if it was done easily and, and, you know, made it really, if it was as easy as throwing something away, if the, your, your custodial staff or whoever was doing the work popped that trough out of the ceiling and threw it in the orange bin instead of the regular bin. And then somebody came around once a month and collected that kind of stuff. I mean, that seems like a business opportunity that's just sitting there. And I wonder who's going to be the one that comes up with it and and actually runs with it. I think this opportunity of creating a secondary market for lighting is very real. Mm. And, uh, you know, we have seen it happen uh, on a small scale, not an ongoing business model, but certainly for some temporary public space projects in Europe where, for example, a skate park was fit out with fixtures that had come from, you know, the storeroom of some well-known lighting manufacturers who had extra gear, excess stock. Uh, That's a great reuse, even if it is temporary. I think uh, some of the questions will be around how to verify the quality of the luminaire before it goes out for its second, third or fourth life. Right. uh, And how to ensure that it's of a certain quality that the original manufacturer wants to be associated with. And the question as to whether it will lie on the shoulders of a third-party verifier or return to be the manufacturer's responsibility with the idea of take-back programs, which are becoming more a reality. You know, we're hearing it coming through potentially, and so there are manufacturers we're talking to who are having to look at how to reverse engineer their processes in their factories, which is not something they had to do or necessarily wanted to do. As you say, it is a different business. Um, I think it'll be very interesting to watch, and I'm sure it's going to happen really quickly, actually. I, I actually, um, I think that the opportunity here is actually for the lighting distributor. I think it's a massive opportunity. Um, if they know, they know when the job was delivered, they know when the fixtures are coming close to their end of life, they know what was delivered and when. If That's just data. They have it already. If they take that information and then reverse it out to the factories and the factories had a way of actioning that information, whether we're talking about recyclability or talking about, you know, deconstruction and rebuilding, um, I, I, it seems very possible to me to do this. And I think the electronics recycling market is a way to, is a place to start to look at this because they've, they've started to think about how to do this at scale. Um, I know companies like Dell and Apple are thinking about, you know, I want to sell Corporation X new computers every two years. They don't want to just throw these old ones in the landfill. So how do we start to make this a, a pattern? How do we start to refit these things? And I think lighting has a longer cycle, which makes it a little bit more challenging, but it's not impossible. I think it's just a, a rethinking of how this works. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, one of the things that we can celebrate perhaps is there's a confidence now to bother to invest in these kinds of initiatives that 
it isn't so much... Well, it has been chicken and egg for a long time about mm. whether there is enough market demand to support it. Can we create the market? And I think with code developments and legislation developments, both in the States and Europe, you know, we, we have people in the incubator who are also from Australasia and Latin America and the Middle East and South Africa, but it is largely driven right now by developments in Europe and North America. Uh, but it's time. Yeah, yeah. So um, as we're sort of coming to the, the end here, I have a couple of, couple of more practical questions. So if you're a designer today and you're working on a space and you're trying to present um, either more sustainable options or at least have a mind toward this topic, what are some things that designers can do right now? Are there, um, I feel like we, we've talked about this a number of times outside of this conversation. So I think of declare labels, I think of these other things, but it's not obvious to everybody that's listening to this right now that there are things you can look up. So what are some of the things that people should be thinking about or looking at um, in products or in their, in their uh, design information as the GLA is working out the, this incubator project? There's definitely small steps that no matter where you are in your development and understanding of life cycle assessment impact that, that you can do. And it's a matter of firstly, looking at your process. So understanding that there are resources out there that can help you evolve what you're actually putting into your uh, fixture schedules and uh, specification documents because there is standard language that's we that's been drafted and put into projects now that that is accessible and there there are toolkits that are available if you'd like to start to learn how to have this kind of scripted conversation with your manufacturer partners or your clients to find out more and just understand what is going into the products that you would like to work with mm. and support those people. So it's a, it's a relationship development process. Uh, and just get used to asking people for that information. And even if it doesn't exist right now, it will help people know that it, it is wanted. Okay. So, you know, th that's asking again, the people within your own supply chain of sorts, but also communicating to clients who may not be aware of what lighting can do um, and how it can contribute to lead credits, for example. It, it is a process of educating others so that the next project will be perhaps a little further along when you start to have these conversations too. Um, I think it is a matter of asking for permission as well to spend a little time to skill up, to understand what you can do, where you can get this new drafting, who, who you can work with and who shares the values that you do and is excited to ask these questions with mm -hmm. you and make progress. And then I think in a really practical sense, just choosing your own mini pilot project is a good way to start. So picking one project that you're going to say, I could see that we have some justification to pursue some of these questions here because we're going for lead credits, for example, or choosing one fixture within an existing schedule and saying, okay, this has the highest quantities or the highest volume. I'm just going to ask about this one fixture and pick one person to work with from your supply chain you think yeah. is on board. And, you know, it just starts to get the ball rolling. People feel a little more comfortable and certainly don't do it on your own because there's people here within the Green Light Alliance incubator who are part of this community trying to figure it out together. So if people want to reach out to us directly, uh, we would love to hear from everyone. It's very much an open community. So LCA incubator at greenlightalliance dash, sorry, greenlight-alliance.com <laughs> is the email if people want to write to us. We'll have links to the GLA in the show notes for sure. Um, so people can, can track down and, and reach out to you guys. I'm encouraged because I think that this is a, it's a real priority. And I think that our cities are going to lead the way on this because 
the practices that are going on in New York and California here in the States, the practices that are going on in Europe, I think as they're proven to be economically viable, they don't particularly cost any, you know, very much more than anything else than traditional or, or older methods of designing and building. Um, one thing that I'll throw in here that I think about a lot, and I think we've talked about a little bit offline is this idea of designing with serviceability in mind. Um, there is a, an incredible bias on almost every project toward what it's going to look like on opening day and what it's going to look like for the first month it's in service. And precious little is thought about what is it going to look like? Forget about, even forget about sustainability for a second. What is this going to look like in seven years? And there's not nearly as much conversation about that portion of it. And when you start to think that way, sustainability automatically starts to creep in. Because if you start to think about, well, you know, if the fixture fails, we just throw in another fixture. Is it going to be the same brightness, the same color temperature, the same lensing, the same this, the same that? Probably not, because it's five years down the road. So if you're thinking about a fixture that is serviceable in the field, you're much more likely to uh, maintain the integrity of your design, much more likely to have a space that looks as good on day 2000 as it does on day one. And that's, um, that's a rare thing in our built environment. And so I think that we can talk about this as a design integrity conversation. And that automatically brings in a lot of these sustainable, sustainable elements to it. Yeah, I think we, you know, this area can get very nerdy, very technical, and it's all <laughs> just about buckets of data. But what we really want to do is continue to create beautiful spaces and experiences for people. Mm -hmm. And we, we are not suggesting that, um, you know, we should simply be trying to find the most efficient design. We really want to be able to understand the impact of good design and see, for example, if we want to design for, elderly people which requires higher levels of light or we want to design with circadian uh, impact in mind which again requires higher levels of light or we want to create a dramatic effect where we can have greater contrast or you just we really want to measure what is the difference between right. one design over another and then move backwards from there rather than simply changing the tools we're using and using an efficient product. We want ultimately to come back to the discussion about what we really want to feel and experience in a space and how we could maybe consider how that will feel differently if we want to be more thoughtful about the impact, but not at the expense of people. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Because then it, the problem becomes, and we saw this with green lighting the first round, right? Well, I'll call V1 of green light. It's not actually not even V1. It's like V50 because when we went from, you know, the first round of incandescent to fluorescent, people hated it. Um, and then we went from fluorescent to LED and the LED wasn't ready for prime time and people hated it. Um, so, you won't gain any traction by designing crappy spaces and calling them green, right? People will just not like them. And that's true from not just from lighting, like everything from like low flow shower heads, right? People hated these things, right? They're just not they're like, like because the immediate benefit is not obvious. And there's a lot of immediate, not <laughs> whatever the opposite of a benefit is <laughs> to using it. Right. So we have to design our spaces in a way that, that, create the light and create, you know, people uh, enjoying them with this mind of, okay, great. But what happens when this space needs to change? What happens when this needs to end its service and become something else? Um, and I think we're going to get there because we partially because we have to get there. Material costs continue to rise. Um, and it's just going to be part of how we think about the, the bill's environment going forward. And that's, that is encouraging to me. Um, so I guess we'll finish up here. We've got a couple more minutes. I'll just finish with two, two questions for you, Lilo. First is, what is making you worried these days? And then we'll finish with what's making you excited. What's, what's worrying you about this conversation? I would never want it to become too myopic, as mm. I was saying in the last uh, 
discussion about quality of design. You know, don't want this just to become a quantitative discussion ultimately and for people to simply latch on to an efficient product and, and be done with it because that is exactly what is happening right now in the UK with legislation that's being introduced uh, this year or proposed, public comment closes in a couple of weeks, to in, to ensure that only fixtures of 120 lumens per watt efficiency are on the market there, mm. with some exceptions. It seems that an oversimplification to just focus on the efficiency of a source of light really misses out the opportunity to involve designers and mm. consumers in the conversation about how we make a, a, a better a positive impact on and a better dent in the decarbonisation um, problem. And at the same time, I think designers and construction cycles are such right now that it is very difficult for each of us to justify the time to step aside and think big picture about how we can do things differently and how we might be open to designing space with lower levels of light or with a, a more considered approach to controls that actually allows for lights to be off or dimmed for right. um, greater parts of the day. So I hope that, and, and maybe this dovetails into what makes me excited, um, you know, I hope that we can start to provide another lens to look at this sustainability conversation which focuses on spatial design and experiential design mm. and that the great progress we're making in analyzing the production of products starts to shift into using the brain of these new fixtures as you started this conversation saying, JP, you know, there's a lot of information about how we're using light in, in certain ways and huge potential to understand and tweak how we use light because of the capacity to go back into a control narrative, which is just the description of how we want light where and when, right. um, you know, to come back in and see how spaces are actually being used by people. When do they actually occupy space? Even if we think about offices right now, there really isn't the same need r with, with hybrid working right now to have vast open plan ambient lit spaces all day and right. for as long, right? So we need to create more intelligent spaces, include designers in that conversation. I'm not sure how you would address this, but to create more time for people yeah. to be given the space to consider this, propose it and have it adopted. Yeah. And then also I'm excited by the potential to try and continue a global conversation for creating consistent standards and some degree of benchmarking so that we can move forward and have some clarity on targets for the lighting industry because right now we're just trying to measure. Uh, very excited by our existing industry bodies like the IALD, in International Association of Lighting Designers, like the IES, uh, the Illuminating Engineering Society, you know, who create codes really working together with SIBSI, which is, you know, the, the British group or Lighting Europe and n being less ter territorial about things with a global citizen's hat on. And, um, you know, also trying to think about how we can support each other in making the investment of time and, and money to progress things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we could talk about this for a long time because it's, we're talking about the future of the industry, really. We're talking about the future of how, we, how buildings get designed and built. Um, there, there are a couple of things that are really exciting to me, and I think the pandemic, in a weird way, has cracked open a couple of things that I think are really um, interesting. The first thing I would say is that because there is less of an immediate demand for office space, um, we have some time to rethink what the workspace should be. Um, across both its energy footprint, 
um, its embodied carbon footprint, but also um, what do we want in a workspace for knowledge workers? Um, is it different than it was 30 years ago? Um, because a lot of a lot of manufact oh, manufacturers, a lot of um, major corporations that are still leasing office space don't seem to think so. The office looks very much the way it did in 1985. And we need to think through, is that what we want? Um, you know, that thinking process, I think, can spur new design paradigms and new ways of thinking about this because even what was being built just before the pandemic, banks of huge open offices with just tons of light on all day can be rethought into more pockets of creative space or collaborative space that could be inherently less um, energy intensive just because of how they're designed. Absolutely. And, you know, this is very top of mind for me at the moment because it's a new project that I've been uh, given the opportunity to think about, which is exactly this question of how we create office space is one example of an application that is more about an amazing experience for collaboration because people will not be coming into the office as often as before just to do their own work. It's really about where people right. are taking meetings, getting to know each other, and it has to be an elevated experience of social working. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, uh, picking up on another point that you started to touch on there is how we need to work with our other partners and collaborators in terms of interdisciplinary um, construction work and approaches. Yeah. So we as lighting are such a new niche industry uh, within construction. We fall between the cracks a little bit in terms of not being strictly interior design. We are systems as well. Similarly within the MEP world, we are not always included at, at the outset in thinking about electrical design or mechanical. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There are very similar developments being, you know, nutted out in all of our fields. And again, it's an it's an opportunity for us to share information, share how we're we're insisting on certain standards, you know, feed back to each other how we want to support clients to make the right decisions because, you know, these 2040 yeah. goals and 2050 goals are actually the designs we're creating right now. Absolutely you know, right. We're supposed to be net zero by then. That means what we are putting on projects now is supposed to deliver that. My first episode of the, the show, I interviewed some, uh, her name is Erin McDonald and she runs uh, lighting environments, uh, a rep agency down in the uh, Baltimore, Maryland area. And, um, one of the things that she talked about was how lighting is the interstitial layer between digital and physical, that you can use that because of the distributed power and the ability. She was talking about it in the context of controls and of information and data, um, because that's where sensors can live. It's where other you know devices can live within that. Um, I think it's also this interstitial level of really understanding where the sustainable use of a space can come from because she really had me rethink what it was to, to have lighting within the space. Cause it's not just about illumination. It is the electronic layer within the building. And it's something that we can think about. Um, if we think about it on that level, I think you pull a lot more stakeholders in you pull the it people in, you pull the sort of everyday residents of the space in, um, because they think a light is light, even though you and I think a lot more about light than a lot of people do. Um, but what else is going on with the fixture can, I think, really remake how we think about lighting as a layer within the building. It's a transformative power. So <laughs> the more we can understand and, you know, there's, as, as we know, digital passports that are being attached to products now that travel mm -hmm. with that product for their lifetime and in contain information about the materials that went into it, its supply chain, its um, recyclability, how you can disassemble it, all of this information alongside the controls information that we have about how to control it, creating mm -hmm. response environments, as well as digging into the data, which as I understand sits there, but hasn't been tapped by many people again, because of the time crunch that we all seem to operate right. under. 
let's involve some of our research bodies, let's involve some of our industry bodies to really say we'd like to see some case studies on that as well. And, you know, it, it'll be a multi-pronged approach to moving forward. Absolutely. All right. Well, Leela, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thanks so much, JP. Always fun. Where should, um, you mentioned the email address before. Is there anywhere else people should be looking for uh, GLA? Definitely the, the Greenlight Alliance website is a good source of information for different resources and case studies. So I'd definitely recommend you go there. Uh, we do have different gatherings at generally lighting uh, yeah. conferences at the moment, but we would love to extend that more broadly. And so if anyone is listening from different sectors and is just curious, we would really love to share more with people outside the lighting industry as our For partners. Sure. Excellent. Well, I will have links to, the, we'll have links to all that stuff in the show notes here on, on YouTube and on your podcast app. So feel free to scroll through and reach out to these guys because, um, this is the kind of work we need to be doing. And this is an episode to share with your non lighting friends, right? There are, if you're a lighting designer and you're listening to this, cause you know, the two of us from our world, um, you know, architects, you know, interior designers, you know, developers, you know, brokers, you know, those people, because those are the people you do business with share this information with them. Let's get people thinking about this because Lila said it before. Uh, if we're going to hit 2040 and net zero, we got to start building it now because we're only 17 years away. And a lot of these buildings last a lot longer than that. So Leela, thank you so much again. Thanks so much, JP. There you have it. Thank you again to Leela for joining me to talk about the future of the lighting industry. One more time, if you liked this episode and found it valuable, please take a moment and leave a comment, share it with someone. It really does help. There are links to many of the things we talked about in the show notes. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you'll join me on the next episode of the Delivered Lumens podcast.